This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 29th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Shortly following the end of the Supreme Court's most recent term, Associate Justice Anthony Kennedy announced his retirement from the bench. I spoke yesterday with Cato's Walter Olson and Roger Pallon about some of the hits and misses of Kennedy's jurisprudence during his time on the Supreme Court. What was Anthony Kennedy's view of government power? and its limits. Well, if I may start on that question, uh, it seems to me that uh, if you start from a classical liberal understanding of the Constitution, which we at Cato do, then we view it as authorizing limited powers to secure individual rights and do the few other things that it's authorized to do. And from that uh, vision, um, much of the jurisprudence that's before the court uh, gives you fairly clear answers. The problem with Justice Kennedy, however, is that he often reached conclusions that uh, we at Cato uh, agreed with. Uh, Often he did not as well. But he seemed to have no theory of the matter. He It was very difficult to discern exactly how he got to his conclusions, except for some vague notion of dignity. And that's what left us uh, scratching our heads. And if if I may, I'd like to start with a a couple of cases in the... um, on the power side, we're probably going to talk mostly about rights, and that's where he shone uh, the most. But um, as as you know, the um, New Deal Constitutional Revolution opened the door for massive government. But uh, Justice and we at Cato uh, in the early 90s were pressing for a revival of the doctrine of enumerated powers, the idea that Congress's powers are limited. And when we saw a case coming along called uh, uh, United States v. Lopez coming out of the Fifth Circuit where old Judge Garwood had said uh, that um, he invoking uh, James Madison that the powers of the federal government are few and defined, we said, whoa, this is just the kind of case we were looking for. And we, uh, we didn't do briefs in those days. We did... Um, uh, policy analysis, and so we got one from um, Instapundent, uh, um, what's his name? Glenn. Oh, yeah, Glenn Harlan Reynolds, and slapped a title on it called Kids, Guns, and the Commerce Clause. Um, is the court ready for constitutional government, thinking that might catch their attention? This was a case that challenged a Texas uh, sta- a, 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 a um, act from Congress, the Gun-Free School Zones Act, which um, criminalized the possession of guns near a school. And so a 12th grader, Lopez, was um, uh, called up on that uh, statute. And uh, old Garwood said uh, that uh, the power of Congress to regulate interstate commerce under which uh, this statute was enacted did not authorize it to regulate guns at school. Well, we thought he was on the mark there, and so did Chief Justice Rehnquist. And he started his opinion with the ringing words, uh, we start with first principles. The Constitution establishes a government of enumerated powers, and he proceeded to find the statute unconstitutional because Congress had exceeded its power under the Commerce Clause, under its power to regulate interstate commerce, and 
the statute was found unconstitutional. Well, Justice Kennedy wrote a concurrence that was joined by Justice O'Connor, and it was a very tepid um, uh, response to the um, the majority opinion to say nothing of Justice Thomas's opinion, uh, his concurrence. And so we had already a signal from uh, Justice Kennedy that he wasn't about to grasp first principles in any principled way. Nevertheless, by the time five years later when we got to the Morrison case, which was another case like Lopez, and there too Rehnquist found that the statute under the Commerce Clause was unconstitutional. Uh, here, Justice Kennedy did not write that kind of a concurrence. He joined Justice um, uh, Chief Justice um, Rehnquist's uh, opinion for the court. Then five years after that, we get to Gonzalez v. Rach, the California medical marijuana case. And there we find that the that Rehnquist once again finds this statute uh, the, uh, as it is applied in this case, whereby uh, Mrs. Raish, under the California law, which authorized uh, the medicinal use of marijuana, um, that the, the um, application of the Controlled Substances Act was unconstitutional, uh, Rehnquist said, because um, the use of, because Mrs. Raich, um grew the marijuana herself. Uh, this was not marijuana that, uh, that traveled in commerce, much less interstate commerce. It never less left her home. Nevertheless, the court went the other way on this, and Justice Kennedy joined the majority there. So he was a, shall we say, fair-weather Federalist in this. And so on the power side of things, it seems to me that he never really did come to grips with the theory of the matter as set forth under the doctrine of enumerated powers. It was something of a disappointment. Well, let me chime in and slightly change the subject. Of the, uh, there was some analyst, I don't remember who it was, who said that uh, the Supreme Court every year has a couple of special cases, uh, and they will run through their whole docket with, by and large, predictably following each of them their own methodology, uh, so that it's not hard to understand why they came out where they did and, and where the lineups were. And then they save a couple of free cards, uh, jokers in the pack, usually for the last day, a couple of days. Uh, and on those uh, cases, they become philosophers, they become uh, uh, monarchs for a day, but in particular, they become legislators. And I always thought of Kennedy as a pretty good example of that, because if you look at regular cases, the sorts of cases that the court hears month in and month out during its term, uh, Kennedy was not that unpredictable. He he didn't talk as much about originalism, and yet he came down with the originalists. Uh, he didn't talk that much about um, some of the principles uh, of the justice who were recognized as more conservative. And yet in practice, um, there he was on separation of powers, generally extremely sound. There he was on federalism, with the occasional exception, which Roger can tell us about, uh, with a few exceptions, very sound on, and strong for federalism, and on down the line. And then there were the special cases. And uh, like Carnival in Germany, where the most staid people suddenly start you know, flouncing around in costumes uh, and throwing things at each other, 
father, uh, Justice Kennedy, would show his legislative side and want to modernize things and want to um, be a classical liberal of a legislative sort, which he always did. You know, because of the way he reasoned, there was always some of that, even when he was reaching very conventional uh, libertarian and conservative uh, answers. But the um, this came out again this last term, as it turns out, of his career, because uh, those who are looking back on the year that just passed uh, recognized that not once did Justice Kennedy cross over, uh, although there were, I think, 19 five to four decisions, not one of them featured the four liberals plus Kennedy, even though those cases where he has filled that role are some of the best known cases of the last 20 years. There wasn't one this time. Even Gorsuch crossed over more often to join the liberals. So in so many ways, uh, just Justice Kennedy was someone who uh, nine times out of 10 or even 19 times out of 20 uh, would give you steady, predictable, uh, and in my view, very sound law. Uh, and then there would be the surprises at the end of the term. All right. I want to talk about two cases, Obergefell and Citizens United. Now, one is one of the most uh, celebrated cases on behalf of uh, gay rights in America, and many of those same people who celebrate uh, Obergefell will look at Citizens United and say, this was one of the worst decisions of the last hundred years of the court. They were both written by Anthony Kennedy. Um, can we talk about uh, the Obergefell decision and uh, I guess what went into that? I know, Roger, you and I have talked about this, this notion of dignity uh, in the past with respect to uh, Kennedy uh, in relation to certain cases. But uh, does that does that taint the, the this case at all? I mean, is it just the did he get to the right conclusion by the wrong means? Well, this is a classic case, indeed, Obergefell, in which we get the right result for the wrong reasons. Um, he went about this. That's the uh, same-sex marriage case. Now, he went about this, um, treating it as a substantive due process case under the 14th Amendment, and therefore as a rights case in the main, uh, whether there was a right to of, of same-sex couples to get married, uh, what the problem that he faced there was brought out nicely by Clarence Thomas in his dissent. Uh, Thomas came up with the right reasons and wrong result, <laughs> one of those rare cases. As Thomas said, the, there is a perfect right of same-sex couples to get married. All they have to do is find some willing preacher who, or some other party uh, that uh, is willing to marry them, and they're home free. What they really want is the imprimatur of the state and the benefits that go, tax advantages and so on and so forth, that go with that. So this isn't a rights case uh, initially. It's an equal protection case. In other words, if the state is going to give its imprimatur and its various benefits to opposite-sex couples, it cannot under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, deny those same benefits to same-sex couples. And so the right follows from the Equal Protection Clause principle. Now, when you look at the dissents, and now Thomas went along with, with uh, the equal protection point, but then when he got to marriage, he did 
what uh, what uh, Chief Justice Roberts did in that case, namely uh, rest everything on the traditional definition of marriage. Well, of course, that gets you in a circular argument because that's just the question, whether the traditional argument for marriage is to be overruled because of an equal protection issue that arises from the states getting involved in marriage in the first place. And then Roberts, in his ringing defense, goes after Lawrence, uh, goes after Lochner v. New York, the famous uh, uh, economic liberties case, or infamous, depending on your perspective. And I think it was no fewer than 16 times he condemned that holding, uh, that, that decision in that case. So, Basically, Roberts was going after the um, the substantive due process jurisprudence that has come from the Fourteenth Amendment. Here again, Tom, uh, uh, Kennedy got the right result, but he went about it in a way that essentially talked of uh, dignity from beginning to end. Well, dignity is not a cognizable, uh, constitutionally cognizable interest. It brings to life the, the famous passage, the sweet life of mystery passage that uh, Scalia often uh, criticized uh, uh, Kennedy for. It is very hard to, uh, first to discern the principle of dignity in the original constitutional language, but also to predict where it would go next, uh, uh, how it could be applied to other areas, lots of ideas for changing the law or changing constitutional application based on dignity. Uh, but it would seem to be a trackless sea. And uh, earlier, uh, uh, Justice Kennedy put and, and really to the end of his career, uh, put a lot of weight on the somewhat parallel concept of animus, which is uh, uh, if the government's intention is bad because it is attempting to subordinate some uh, historically subordinated group or it is attempting to uh, belittle uh, some important uh, minority, uh, even if it doesn't undermine its legal rights, it is uh, somehow or other, um, you know, that, that motivation is there. Now, you, you go back to the Roman Evans case, uh, first, I think, in the sequence of gay rights cases in which Colorado had uh, essentially, Colorado voters had declined to have a gay rights ordinance. Uh, and no one really argued that a state was obliged to have one. But the idea was that uh, repealing one um, was a badly motivated act on the voters' part. And uh, again, although Animus has had a lot of subsequent life, and there are law professors who are applauding as it does, and Animus shows up in uh, the debates over things like the Trump travel ban. Um, it is... Um, it's hard to predict what is going to happen because everyone also knows that there are some badly motivated government actions that turn out to be lawful. Um, and so it can't be just bad motivation by itself. Um, uh, you know, what, if, why would a badly motivated failure to act be immune as it is under uh, an animus theory? So we are left with potential new areas that could head who knows where in future years um, uh, and which in the hands of more liberal appointees in the future could actually transform constitutional law in, in ways that libertarians would not like very much. That's why I agree with Roger entirely. So much better if some of the gay rights cases have been um, rooted in the operation of individual rights, um, rights to um, uh, you know, equality of um, getting certain 
statuses, rights to uh, liberty from imprisonment over uh, self-regarding actions, you know, what, whatever it be, if it were based on a matrix of individual rights rather than um, these wider um, uh, concepts of dignity and, and animus. And let's remember, too, Wally, that animus came up in this term in one of the most uh, watched cases of the term, namely the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. And there, came up in multiple directions. Yes, fact. that's right. And there it turns out that uh, because the commission, the Colorado Commission, um, was was engaged in egregious animus toward uh, religion that uh, the case went the way it was that they that the baker won had the commission been uh, more uh, uh, subtle about its uh, rejection of his uh, his complaint uh, he he would not have won but showing the problem I was complaining of a moment ago, the dissent by uh, Ginsburg and Sotomayor uh, had some good points to make about how, yes, uh, you may find in an adjudicatory process or legislative process that uh, one stage of it is tainted by people saying, um, you know, awful things that uh, show them to be biased actors. Um, uh, but she said uh, that can be rectified uh, both by uh, later stages in which someone else c continues the process and does an ultimate vote, let's say, uh, or by the appeal process or by uh, it essentially um, uh, it's a Lady Macbeth type point or maybe the opposite of Lady Macbeth. Uh, yes, there are stands, but but it doesn't mean that the stand is permanent and that the government can never go forward and do that thing. And uh, it was the liberals who were struck by that in this case. And again, it the position switches back and forth because days later, it was the um, uh, conservatives in the travel ban case said, yes, there's some taint. The president said some obviously prejudicial things. Uh, and yet the process was worked through in such a way that it was an independent basis for it. Exactly what Ginsburg, I believe it was, had said in Masterpiece Cake Shop. Yes. And in the travel ban case, that's uh, t uh, Trump v. Hawaii that was just decided, uh, Kennedy had an interesting concurrence there about which I blogged at Cato at Liberty. Um, the, the point he was making is that, yes, the president has broad discretion in this area of immigration, but that isn't discretion to do anything. In other words, the means that the executive uses has, have to pass constitutional muster too. So I think that was a good warning that he placed uh, in the uh, in the decision uh, in, by way of his concurrence that um, was important to be put there. In the Citizens United case, uh, you know, people forget, it's easy to forget that this case, this case, Citizens United, came before the court twice. And um, the, the first time they heard it, they said, well, we need to, we need to have a broader discussion here. And perhaps, uh, I think everybody's understanding was at the time, we might need to throw out more old bad cases than we thought. And so uh, in Citizens United, this was a very contentious 5-4 uh, opinion of the court written by Anthony Kennedy, in which he essentially said, and correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, you don't lose your right to speak uh, just because you're doing it through a corporation that you own. Is that a fair assessment in shorthand of what this decision was about? Well, he had unions, too, in there, because it was both unions and corporations that enjoyed this speech, although all we ever hear is the union or the corporation side of it. 
The background of Citizens United is that not only was the court headed in a more speech-protective direction on many different issues within free speech law, but Justice Anthony Kennedy has been called the most uh, speech-protective, the most pro-First Amendment justice in history. And uh, within that context, it should not be surprising that uh, as part of the uh, re-examination of a lot of uh, areas where it was argued that free speech law should yield to some important regulatory issue, uh, in this case, um, with the regulation of campaigns to make politics better or cleaner or something. Uh, in other cases, it was uh, various other uh, alleged goods, some of them important goods. Uh, th the court has across the board been uh, declining to recognize the legitimacy of exceptions to, uh, unless they are old and well-established exceptions to First Amendment law. It doesn't want new ones created, and it will go back and sometimes narrow uh, old ones. And Kennedy, in so many ways, was uh, uh, the voice for that, not the only voice, because he had the other justices often on his side. But uh, you know, he, he could tell you know, the facts of the Citizens United case were, uh, was it a book or a movie about uh, uh, Hillary Clinton? It was a movie. Yeah, and uh, the idea that uh, in the collision between you know, legitimate goals of uh, trying to clean up campaigns and whether or not the government gets to regulate movies, uh, the first goals <laughs> have to yield. It's just, you know, the, the First Amendment is written in a rather absolute way for good reason. And um, what I find more surprising about Citizens United is the uh, tenacity of the liberals not recognizing that to them, this ought to be an awfully hard case. And they didn't express that. Uh, it, the, the Kennedy side to me was unsurprising. That's how it should come out if you start with Kennedy's premises. Uh, and let's remember that in the oral argument in that case, the solicitor general who was defending the McCain-Feingold Act was asked, would this statute enable you to ban a book I think it was uh, I think it was uh, the chief justice saying so it's a 500 page book and at the end it says so vote for X you believe that could be banned and when the solicitor general said yes a book that did call for voting for a particular candidate could be banned then I think it was all over for McCain-Feingold. This, this is book burning that we're talking about here. So <laughs> Citizens United has, uh, in later years, been subject to this enormous demonization uh, uh, beyond, I think, the weight that it actually deserves to bear. It's not that surprising an opinion. Uh, to the extent that they have a beef with the law, uh, they ought to be expressing the beef at a longer series of opinions, uh, which were all leading in this direction, uh, and perhaps asking to have a less stringent First Amendment. That that it was certainly, to me, is the meaning of the proposal for a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United is, uh, we think the First Amendment protects too much speech. Uh, let's go recalibrate it. And, yeah, and you see, you see echoes of that in that uh, the NIFLA case again, where they refuse to carve out some area of speech that, by virtue of it being having been carved out, receives less First Amendment protection. There is forced expression, which has been around for a while, but which the court is uh, this year in both 
uh, NIFLA and the Janus Labor Union case, the court showed that it was not giving an inch and perhaps was uh, uh, firming up uh, the position of First Amendment law on forced expression. Uh, but it, someone was um, answering the objection, the constantly heard objection, oh, doesn't this all just come out uh, based on the policy preferences of the individual cases? And uh, if you believe that, take a look at the Crush Videos case, because no one on the court can possibly stand Crush Videos, these disgusting things of people who get some sort of uh, frisson from from seeing animals um, manhandled. And yet, the logic was there. Uh, this was their approach to the First Amendment. Uh, by golly, they were going to apply it on behalf of some of the most unsympathetic people who have been dragged into the Supreme Court in a long time. Uh, to each of you, uh, this last question here, what is your favorite either bit of writing or uh, reasoning or case that uh, Anthony Kennedy either dissented in or wrote the wrote a concurrence or the majority opinion for? Let me uh, take that one, uh, Caleb. Uh, I think Lawrence v. Texas was Justice Kennedy's best opinion ever. Uh, it was a challenge to the um, Texas same-sex sodomy case, which criminalized same-sex sodomy. And indeed, it was a challenge to a case that was decided by the court just 15 years before that uh, from uh, Georgia, namely Bowers v. Hardwick. In the run-up to this case, Lawrence v. Texas, the debate was whether this would be decided on the basis of strict scrutiny or the rational basis test. If it were strict scrutiny, the court would say that the government has to have a compelling state interest, the means must be narrowly tailored. If it was rational basis, as most people thought it would be because there was no express right in the Constitution to same-sex sodomy then the burden would rest upon uh, Mr. Lawrence to show that he had such a right and he would probably fail. Well, Justice Kennedy cut right through that question and that set of uh, options, and he said, this case is about liberty. Therefore, the burden is on the government to show why it can restrict the liberty of Mr. Lawrence and his partner. And the best that Texas could come up with was morals. That was not good enough. And so the importance of this case is that finally, at least in this case, the court went to the proper approach to 14th, Amendments, uh, 14th Amendment jurisprudence, which deals with the question what are the rights of individuals? More importantly, what is the power of the state to restrict whatever rights individuals may and may not have? Now, the usual approach to this, especially from conservatives, is to be wary of courts finding rights. The Kennedy methodology avoided that by saying the question is not whether Mr. Lawrence and his partner have this right. The question is whether the state has the power to intrude on their liberty when what they are doing is violating the rights of no one else. 
In other words, he went right to the presumption of the Constitution for liberty, which means that there is a burden upon the government to justify any restrictions it imposes on that liberty. The power of the state of Texas, the police power, is essentially a power to secure our rights, whose rights were being violated by Mr. Lawrence and his partner. It turns out the state could point to no one. This statute was not protecting the rights of anyone. It was simply an expression of the morals of the people in Texas. Indeed, the first version of this statute prohibited sodomy, period, but the good legislators of Texas realized that it caught too many of them in its maw, and therefore they narrowed it down to same-sex sodomy, which they uh, criminalized. And even that wouldn't wash because, again, whose rights are Mr. Lawrence and his partner violating? What is the authority of Texas to intrude upon their liberty? And my favorite decision, I suppose, is one we've talked about, which is Citizens United, because the other than the one that that Roger mentioned, uh, my my uh, nomination would be that because uh, it basically was an announcement. Uh, we are serious about the First Amendment, and of all the different excuses we would take for violating it, the last one is probably going to be that some politician doesn't want to be criticized. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Roger Pallon is vice president for legal affairs. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 